Greatest book, greatest chapter, greatest joy. Greatest book, the Bible. And I argued why on Friday night, namely, it is the one book without which the ultimate purpose of God to be supremely glorified in the white hot intensity of the everlasting joy of his redeemed people in himself would fail. But because the Bible exists, that purpose will not fail. It is the greatest book in the world. The greatest chapter, Romans 8, and I will argue in the first half of this message why that is so. And the greatest joy, seeing and savoring and sharing in and showing the glory of God. And that will be the second half of the message. So first, why is Romans 8 the greatest chapter in the Bible? Romans 8 is so dense and so constant in good news, the good news that is so great and so glorious and so vastly superior to all other good news, like the good news of health or family good news or church good news or job good news or political good news or international good news or financial good news, so vastly superior to all other good news that you can scarcely feel the force of the good news until you take every verse and turn it into a statement of the good news, which I did, but won't read them all. I'm going to read 16 of them, and instead of reading them as they're stated, I'm going to take the place of God and speak them to you. I feel some authorization to do this because Paul said, uh, I am ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through me to you. Be reconciled to God. These are 16 of the best. And... My prayer now is that I speak them to you as I speak them to you on behalf of God. He would cause you to receive them as your own. And I was an outsider. In Christ, my son, you are free from eternal condemnation. My spirit in you will one day raise you from the dead. I executed the penalty of your sin in the crucified flesh of my son. My Holy Spirit is filling you and causing you to fulfill the demand 
of the law of love. The power of my spirit will enable you to kill sin. My indwelling spirit is the spirit of adoption awakening in your cry. Abba, Father. My children, you are heirs of my glory after a life of groaning in this fallen world. Children, that groaning is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to you. One day, my entire creation will attain the freedom of the glory of your glory. When you don't know how to pray in your sufferings, my spirit will pray for you. One thing you do know for sure, I will work everything for your good. From eternity, I took note of you. I acknowledge you. I chose you. I destined you to infallibly magnify my son by your becoming like him. I forged in eternity an unbreakable chain. I predestined and called and justified and glorified. At no point will you ever be excluded. Do you see? I, the Almighty, am for you, and no one can successfully be against you. I gave my son for you, and with the hardest act behind me, nothing can stop me from giving you everything you need to enjoy me forever. No charge can stick against you. I justify you in my son who died and rose and reigns and intercedes for you. Therefore, every one and every thing that attempts to block my love for you will not only be removed, it will be swept into the river of my omnipotent love and serve you for your good and my glory forever. Some of you are young and some of you are old. My dream for this conference is that whether old or young, from this time forward, Romans 8 
would be in your mind and in your heart the great eight. That some of you would look back in 50 years when the others of us are long gone. I'm talking to you teenagers and 20-somethings and 30-somethings. That some of you in 50 years will look back on this conference and say, in my 20s, I went to a conference once. And the whole thing was focused on Romans 8. I had never seen so much attention paid to one single chapter in the Bible. And God met me powerfully. And I resolved to memorize it. Romans 8. And now, 50 years later, it has been my daily companion. It has saved me a thousand times from despair and sin. I taught it to my children. I taught it to my grandchildren. What a legacy. I do believe it is the great chapter in the Bible. That's what my prayer is for you, young people. Is it really? <laughs> There's a lot of good chapters in the Bible. We should do one on Isaiah 40. Is it really? In a sense, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter which is the greatest because every word from the mouth of God is a great word because he's a great God. And within the relentless greatness, however, there is greater and greatest. Yes, there are. But I know that you critical types, whom I like very much, <laughs> takes one to know one, <laughs> would be asking me, oh, it really depends on what criteria you use. That's true. That's true. So here are my seven reasons why. I believe it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. Number one, there is no other chapter that more deeply or fully deals with the brokenness of the physical universe and how it got that way and what will become of it in glory. Number two, there is no chapter that expresses with more clarity or power the infallible, unbreakable linkages in our salvation from predestination to glorification. Number three, there is no other chapter that combines the intercession of the Holy Spirit for us and the intercession of the Son of God for us in the service of the love of the Father for us 
the conspiracy of the Trinity with each other to make our salvation absolutely sure. Number four, there is no chapter that explicitly and repeatedly juxtaposes the necessary horrors of our suffering with the utterly assured grandeur of the glory of God that moves with such force through suffering to a crescendo of unshakable hope in that suffering in the love of God. Nothing like it. Number five, there is no chapter that deals more directly and more tenderly with our struggle to know we are the children of God, opening to us the witness and the evidences of the Holy Spirit. Number six, there is no chapter more sustained in the litany of privileges and securities and assurances to hold us firmly in the keeping love of God. And number seven, there is no other chapter in which so many glorious truths without any, not a single command explicit in this chapter are marshaled so many glorious truths without any imperative are marshaled precisely to help us live by the spirit in the fulfillment of the law of love none like it those are my seven reasons and with that last observation about the fact that the chapter is moving us to do without telling us to do, we shift to the greatest joy. Greatest book, greatest chapter, and now greatest joy. The link between joy and this chapter is the link between joy and the present reality of the Holy Spirit and the future hope of glory. Holy Spirit, present working, glory on the way. And the presence of joy, the greatest joy in this chapter, is the connection between those two, Holy Spirit, glory at the end. That's where we're going. The point I'll try to make is that because the present work of the Holy Spirit uh, in us and because of the hope of the glory of God before us as they're laid out in Romans 8, this chapter warrants and awakens the greatest and the longest joy possible and conceivable. That's my thesis. And I say that even though the word joy or rejoice does not occur in this chapter. I knew that when I chose the title. Neither does the word faith occur in this chapter. Neither does the word trust. Neither does the verb believe. Nor are there any commands whatsoever or any imperatives in this chapter. And I'm going to argue that the absence of the word joy and rejoice 
and the absence of the word believe and the absence of all imperatives addressed to our wills is not a hindrance to the power of this chapter to awaken the greatest joy, but a means to it. Not at all implying that would be counterproductive of God to command that we rejoice, since he does everywhere. But not here. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. Romans 12, rejoice in hope. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad. Psalm 32, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. It is a wonderful thing, not a bad thing, that our God is so committed to our being fully satisfied in him that he commands that it be so. But not here. None of us rejoices merely because we're told to. That's not the way the emotions work. Right? Telling a sad person to be happy does not make him happy. Well, how do emotions work? They work like this. If you are brokenhearted because you just got news that your best friend was killed one hour ago in a car wreck. And I come to you and say, don't be sad. That won't change your emotions. But what if I say, don't be sad. It was a mistake. Your friend is not dead. She's in the hospital and she's doing okay. She's going to be fine. It was a mistake. I just saw her. That will change your emotions. That's amazing. Facts change Emotions. <laughs> what else? You're on drugs if you need something else. <laughs> Facts change emotions. She's not dead. Are you sure? Are you sure? He said, it was the police. They said she was. She's not. I just saw her. Here, I took a picture of her on my phone. <laughs> really? Everything changes with a fact. A fact. Don't play off facts against emotions. All we've got is facts. You're an, a robot. 
if you need to be poked with a needle to get emotions to be different. Facts change hearts. She's not dead. Of course, not all facts change emotions. If I said, I saw the accident, and I'm sure she died instantly. So she didn't suffer. That wouldn't change much. But great and glorious facts, hope-filled facts, change your emotions. All you have to do is just think about the stock market. Think about a kid that calls you and says, I'm coming home after five years. You can think of 10 facts right now that would change your life. Yes, you can. 10 facts that would make you dance. This is not a mystery. This is just the way life is. So facts, great and glorious facts, hope-filled facts, change emotions unless you don't believe them. They might be true and they might be glorious. But if you don't believe them, they won't change your emotions. If I say to you, it was a mistake. The, free, the police got it wrong. It wasn't your friend who's, who died. She's in the hospital. She's okay. I just took a picture of her. She's all right. And you say, you're just trying to make me feel better. That's not true. The police said so. Then your emotions wouldn't change. You don't believe me. The point is this. Romans 8 is pervasively laden with the greatest and most glorious joy awakening facts in the universe. About 34 of them. There's no command to rejoice there. Just facts. And I'm arguing that's no hindrance. <laughs> that's no hindrance. For my joy that he's not telling me to, just giving me 34 facts. The facts are decisive. Nope, that's not right. They're not decisive. Faith in the facts is decisive. Will we be able to see the glory? of the facts? Will we believe in the facts? Will we receive them into the, into the soul, savoring them as sweet and precious and great, beyond reckoning? That's a decisive question. No, it's not. Faith is not the decisive question. 
because the chapter makes plain that in my flesh I cannot see, I cannot savor, I cannot receive the glorious facts. I am dead. The mind of the flesh does not submit to, cannot please, cannot be pleased by God. My faith is not decisive. The facts are not decisive. The Holy Spirit is decisive, and I'm not going to correct that. The Holy Spirit is so prominent in this chapter, it's simply stunning. You can't see anything without him. What if you don't savor? What if you don't see anything as compellingly beautiful? What if the messenger is boring when he says, she's alive, your friend is alive, and you find that boring news? You need the Holy Spirit. He is absolutely necessary for you to see and savor the best news in the world. There must be facts, true and glorious facts, and we must see them, and we must savor them, receive them, embrace them as glorious, but we can't. So we're back where we started Friday. The word spirit refers to the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans 30 times. 20 of those are in this chapter. And 15 of the 20 are in the first 16 verses. It's the most dense paragraph on the Holy Spirit in all the Bible. He is the most prominent reality in Romans Eight, at least in the first part. Why? <laughs> Why is the Holy Spirit dense alongside 34 dense facts of glory? Why? Why is this chapter the most sustained description of joy-awakening, hope-giving facts alongside the most sustained focus on the Holy Spirit. Why is that? I'll give you three clues to the answer why that is. Number one, so we're trying to explain why is this chapter the place of maximum exposure to glorious, hope-giving facts and maximum exposure to the person of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. Why is that the case? Clue number one, Romans 5, 5. Hope is not, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the real emotion of hope is awakened and sustained by a Holy Spirit sense of being loved by God. I read it again. Hope, that's an emotion. Hope 
does not put us to shame. That is, it won't fail. It's not fake. It's not inauthentic. Real, living, lasting hope won't fail you because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit. That means there's a living, acting work of the Spirit mediating a sense of I'm loved, I'm loved, I'm loved with everlasting love. You cannot feel that without the Holy Spirit. It's Him. He is the love of the Father for the Son arriving in you so that your love for God and His love for you is present in a person. And that's why the hope that rises out of that can never fail. So the the first clue is that chapter 5, verse 5, makes the Holy Spirit essential in the awakening and sustaining of authentic spiritual emotion. The reason they're both dense there in Romans 8 is because without the Holy Spirit, these facts lie dead. Clue number two, Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is joy in the Holy Spirit. Amazing statement. So the least we can say is, if you are a subject of the kingdom... Joy is yours in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy. Emotions must have facts. Otherwise, you're a robot. You're on drugs. Hallucinations. There are facts there, but lots of emotions. High, low, whatever. But if you're real, facts awaken emotions, but they don't. For God, without the Holy Spirit. So clue number two from Romans 14, 17, as to why Romans 8 is so dense with the Spirit and Romans 8 is so dense with facts is because subjects of the kingdom have joy in the Holy Spirit. And without the two together, these facts are powerless. Clue number three, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God's purpose is that we would be filled with joy in believing facts. He 
is glorious. Christ died. Christ rose. Christ is infinitely valuable. Christ is beautiful. Christ is precious. Christ is the highest treasure in the universe. Believe that, and in believing that, experience joy. So that by the power of the Spirit, in and through that believing, you will abound in hope. It won't happen without the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. The point of these three clues is this. The reason the chapter with the most sustained description of joy awakening facts also is the chapter that begins with the greatest focus on the Holy Spirit is that without the work of the Holy Spirit, the facts would be dead. They are Himalayan facts. And millions of people would read the chapter and yawn and turn on the television. That's a dread disease. Greatest book greatest chapter, greatest joy through the Holy Spirit based on the facts. Without the Holy Spirit, seeing, savoring, sharing in, showing the glory of God will not happen. But when he awakens, when he works, gives his life-giving power they will. They will happen. The greatest joy will happen in the greatest chapter, in the greatest book, without any command, any imperative, because the Holy Spirit is opening our eyes to see the facts. Let me move towards an end by taking those words, seeing, savoring, sharing, showing. It's a wonderful providence that they all begin with S. There are hokey ways to outline reality and then there are providential ways. <laughs> At least in English. Verse 18, Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 5, 2, we rejoice, rejoice, that's an emotion, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God's a fact that's coming. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the object, remember the distinction between the experience of an object and the object, the object of our joy is the glory of God. The object of the greatest joy is the glory of God, the panorama of the beauty of God's perfections. To see it and to savor it 
as more precious than anything else. I think that's implied in verse 18. Those two words, see and savor, I think are right there in verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So you look around and you see the pleasures in this world. And suffering takes them away. And then Paul says, because of what I see out there, I see that these pleasures I am losing are so inferior to the pleasure in the glory of God I am gaining, there's no need to compare. It's not worth comparing because I'm seeing that and I'm savoring that more clearly and with more satisfaction. I'm seeing and savoring all that this world has to offer. So seeing and savoring are there in verse 18. Now back to verse 17, the previous verse. If we are children of God, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And that's where I get the word share in. So see, savor, share in. Read it again. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be, be glorified, made glorious with him. So I'm sharing in his glory. I'm sharing in it. It's rubbing off on me. I'm being drawn into the light and into the, into the glory. Or as verse 29 says, predestined to be conformed to the image of the sun. Or as Jesus said, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. So the greatest joy in the greatest chapter, in the greatest book in the world is to see and to savor and to share in the glory of the Son of God who is the image of God. When he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Seeing the glory of God is not enough for us. We want to be in the glory of God. Being and seeing are the destiny. Seeing, savoring, sharing in. The child of God does not just want to see his father. He wants to be like his father. The child of God does not just want to see perfect holiness. He wants to be holy as his father is holy. We don't just admire sinless purity in God. We want to be done with sinning against him. We want to share in his sinlessness. We're weary of letting him down. We're weary of dishonoring him. We're weary of living out of sync with who we are. We long to be pure, not just see pure. Be gloriously holy. Be full of purity. 
Be full of love. Be righteous. Be wise. And this chapter says, you will be glorified. Conformed to his image. You don't have to worry that your joy will stop with seeing. You don't have to worry that your joy will stop with savoring. You don't have to worry that your joy will stop with sharing in now. There is something more, one more, which I called showing. What do I mean by that? And this is, I think, the apex of the greatest joy in the greatest chapter, in the greatest book in the Bible. In addition to seeing the glory of God, savoring the glory of God, sharing in the glory of God, Romans 8 teaches that in the age to come, we're going to show the glory of God in a way that I did not know about for many years. I'm tempted to say decades. I think Romans 8.28 is a great verse. It's not the greatest verse as far as the final outworking of the greatest purpose of the universe and the greatest joy of God's people. Verse 21 is the top in that sense. The day is coming when the glory of the universe, the glory of the world, will participate in our glory, and our glory will be extended into and expressed through the glorification of the material universe. The universe will be an extension of our glory, a showing of our glory, which is God's glory. Verse 21 says that the renovation of the material universe is an outworking of and an entering into the glory of the children of God. Let's read it. It goes like this. Romans eight twenty one. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain. So where is creation heading? What was the purpose of it all? Why the galaxies? Why the vast reaches of space? Why all the particularities of the material universe? Where is it all going? What was God's purpose? This verse answers like this. The creation itself will, this is God's will for it, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's not what I expected years ago when I thought about the relationship between me and the universe in the future. I thought God would restore the whole universe to its original unfallen glory, free from corruption. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The purpose of the creation is to tell the glory of God. So he restores it to perfect displays of his glory. And that I, the redeemed son of God, then would be made to share in that glory. That's the way I thought. And that's backwards from the way Paul is talking. What he says is that the children of God are glorified first 
and the universe is made to share in that. Not the other way around. Let's read it again so you hear it. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, or literally into, set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The glory of the redeemed, blood-bought children is the glory into which the universe enters and is shaped by. In other words, at the beginning, when God made the world, the creation was designed to tell the glory of God, right? Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The the world was created at the beginning to be a display of God's deity, wisdom, beneficence, beauty. That's not the final destiny of the world. To display God's deity, wisdom, beneficence, and beauty. That's not where it's all going. It is there. It's not going there. In the end, when the great history of redemption is complete and the Son of God has entered into the material universe and has wed humanity and deity in the God-man and has done his great, central, glorious, saving work on the cross and in the resurrection and has united human nature to himself and has bought by his blood the freedom of the glory of the children of God and gathered them to himself from all the peoples of the world and glorified them with a dazzling likeness to himself, then the material universe, the vast stretches of the galaxies and all space and all time will be drawn into that freedom and redemption and purpose and glory. Which means that the universe will not simply declare the glory of God, it will declare the glory of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the blood-bought people conformed to the image of the Son of God. And in that glory of conformity to the image of a Dying and rising redeemer conformed to the image of that magnificent diverse excellencies called the Christ, the Son of God. In conformity to that, the universe stands on tiptoe waiting, watching. And at God's appointed time, he says, okay, universe, okay, galaxies, that's what it was about Get behind that. Come on into that. For the rest of eternity, make sure that all your supernova display the glory of the Son in the glory of the family. That's the showing that will be the climax of the greatest joy in the greatest chapter 
in the greatest book in the Bible. So, the greatest chapter in the greatest book in the whole world may not mention joy, may not have any commands in it, only facts, just hope-giving, joy-awakening, Himalayan facts, and the power of the Holy Spirit densely spreading itself through those facts. That may be the case. And by that power, in those Himalayan facts, God changes everything. We see by the Holy Spirit. We savor by the Holy Spirit. We share in the glory of the Son and are conformed to Him by the Spirit. And when that is brought to consummation and all the elect are gathered from all the peoples of the world and are shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father with the radiance of the sun, then the universe will be brought in to serve that and we, through the universe participating in our radiance, will show the glory of God and that will be the climax of the greatest joy in the greatest chapter, in the greatest book in the world. Father, I ask that these things would not be too great to produce in us by your spirit a life now so radically out of step with this world that people would wonder the reason for our hope, our hope. I ask for those in this room right now who spent most of their lives bemoaning the fact that they have so few emotions would be stunned, broad awake by the greatness of the joy in the facts by the Spirit in this chapter. So call us up into song now and then into a life of love that displays how radically real you are to us. We hail your name, Lord Jesus. Won't you stand with me as we sing? <laughs>